Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath it. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and this time round, we are doing another Warhammer episode, which means this time round, we're going to be talking about tactics and technology in warfare. But first, the model stuff. So, as I've said before, if, if you are a big fan of Warhammer, you already know this, but to the uninitiated, the people who've only just joined the podcast, hello, thank you for listening, welcome to the fun Warhammer is a tabletop role-playing game, board game, tactical game. Basically, you are shoving little models around a table. Each model represents soldiers, a monster, a vehicle, something like that. And you roll dice to see whether you hit or miss. That kind of stuff. And there are two flavours. There's kind of the fantastical world type place. Think dragons. Think knights in shining armour. That's called Age of Sigma, and then you've got the futuristic one with space marines and aliens, and laser guns, las cannons technically. That's called Warhammer 40,000. And I'm actually going to go into both of them this time. Usually I do an episode if it is about Warhammer on one thing or another. And this time round, I think it's worth looking at both. I'll be spending a little less time on Age of Sigma, and you'll understand why in a minute. Because I'm going to say that there are two things, two layers going on with Warhammer. First of all, it is a game, in essence, simulating a battle. And so over the years, the rules have become, quite frankly, too complicated to try and show the nuances of battle. That's one thing that's going on. This is what I mean about sort of technology and the evolution of strategies and things like that. But the other thing is literally the technology being used on a battlefield. So let's look at the game itself and say, when I was first playing it back in the 1980s, if you bought, let's say, a dragon, you would find out what its stats were. Obviously, it's a big dragon, so it's more durable than, let's say, a, a human warrior. It obviously would be able to breathe fire, so it's got a projectile weapon, whereas the warrior might only have a sword. And, you know, it's going to have tough hides, so it's got armor's going to be quite good. So in other words, in essence, what you see is what you got. And you'd have to pay a lot of points and also a lot of real money for one of these big monstery things, which were always fun to paint. And you would put it on the table and it would wreak havoc. But then you could probably only afford 
probably in both senses, one big stompy monster in each army. But since then, things have evolved. And look, there's lots of different names for them depending on which army you've got, whether we're talking about Warhammer 40,000 or Age of Sigma. But the point is this nowadays, armies themselves have various abilities. And also leaders have special abilities. Some of them might be for themselves or some of them might be making the soldiers around them more ferocious or more durable or something like that. In video game terms, we talk about buffing and nerfing in the sense of there are certain things that you can do in video games that give you an advantage. That would be a buff and something that makes you weaker. That would be a nerf. Uh, indeed, uh, sometimes certain things in video games become stronger than the original creators thought, and they will actually just tone it down with like an update. That's quite often called nerfing. And indeed, the problem that Warhammer has is it's one of these things where it's a problem of success and not failure. Again, back in the 1980s, way before the internet, you bought the book and it told you the rules. And you realised over time that some of these rules were a bit biased or hadn't really been thought through, and some things were perhaps more powerful than you thought, but tough. There was no way to update them. You couldn't be sent an email or a PDF for the latest updates. Now they do. And so, you know, even if you bought the game, and indeed all the armies, you need to buy the book of that army. So if you've got 10 armies, you're going to need 10 books on top of also the initial rule books on top of all the figures. This is why it becomes quite an expensive hobby. But the thing is, again, people sometimes realize that they need to adjust them. The most notable one in 2022, at least, was the Leagues of Votan. I did a whole episode on them. Yes, the dwarves, the squats were coming back to Warhammer 40,000 and they just made them way too strong. And so they, they even created a funny video, sort of, sort of admitting, putting their hands up and going, yeah, we, we didn't do that very well. And consequently, it had to be changed. But the, the frustrating thing from my perspective is I didn't buy them to be the best player. I bought them because I missed the squats in Warhammer 40,000, a bit of nostalgia for me. But the thing is, in the starter box, you got various models, and also you got their army book. Any of these things are beautiful creations. But the thing is, once you got the update, well, am I going to print it out and shove a few A4 sheets into the back of the book? I mean, this is the problem. If all of these books were only online, and then you need to update them, no problem. Like a video game, nothing really changes. The text in the actual PDF will change. That's it. Job done. But if you've got a book, once it's out, it's out. And it's not the first time we're in the space of one or two weeks of getting the book, the new edition. They've actually sort of turned around and said, we've changed our mind. And you can absolutely understand how, yes, thank you very much for the customer service. But on the other hand, maybe you should have done a better job of testing this before you printed the book, because now I've got a beautiful book that is already, in essence, out of date. And that's annoying. So I, I, I hear people on that. But the other thing I was saying is, so, you know, back in the day, you had your big stompy monster. And so something big and terrifying on the battlefield looked big and terrifying. Whereas the first thing I noticed when I came back into the hobby six years ago, something like that, was the fact that, oh my goodness, 
I've got this big stompy monster. I've, I've you know, I paid a lot of money for this model. I had a lot of fun painting it, but it's being beaten by some pretty average troops because the person I'm opposite has read all of the rule book and well done for them. I mean, you know, they're, they're, not, they're not cheating. You get some people going, ah, oh, sweats when they sort of like people try too hard. It's like, no, they, they sat down. But the th- this is the thing. I am a married man, father of two with a day job. And this isn't the only thing I do. And therefore, I don't have the time to do the sort of deep dive. And what particularly my eldest son, while he was playing, he's sort of gone off and done other things now. He's 16 years old. You know, he's Warhammer. He's always got a soft spot for, but he's not spending his time painting and playing. But what he was particularly good at was sitting there and just pouring over those books and go, well, if I had this ability with that leadership skill and this, basically, you can't kill me. And yeah, I get that, but it's really annoying. It's like, well, if I spent half of my points on this big stompy monster that's being killed by some very average, relatively cheap troops, what's the point of the big stompy monster anymore? And there is a complaint, particularly with the Warhammer 40,000 at the moment, that now you've got different ways to win the battle. In the old days, it used to be basically either, in essence, capture the flag, get to a point and stay on the point and make sure the other enemy troops are away from that point, or just a simple last man standing kind of strategy. You know, you know, things have got a little bit more complicated, but nowadays, particularly in Warhammer 40,000, it's not a case of, again, back in the day, it's like, I won by four points, or I won because you're all dead. That was it. But now you're getting sort of like battle reviews, people sort of actually playing games online and sort of showing you them. And it's like, I won 85 to 72. It's like, really? We're now scoring as regularly as basketball? And this is the problem. So you have to work out what's the enemy doing? What's the enemy's abilities? What are those individual leaders' abilities? And then obviously, I say obviously, but different, although I've bought, let's say, a Skaven, these are the Ratmen, I've got a Skaven army, but different flavours, different clans of Skaven have different abilities. So it's going to take me forever to learn my own army and all its abilities, and also don't forget that stratagem, etc. And also these are the different ways to win the, the game. But then I have to remember it for my opponent, and I may never have played against that type of army before. So nowadays, it's sort of considered best practice, say, you know, just be aware this is the person who buffs. Be aware over here, I will be able to sort of repel magic or something like that. So in other words, you sort of raw raw brush go, this is what's going on in my army. So you've got a fighting chance to know what should I attack first. But yeah, this sounds like a lot of groundwork. And indeed, I've heard some people going so going to formal tournaments. You know, people are sitting there spending quite a lot of time going through the rule books and sort of double checking things or people challenging going, really? Can you do that? It's like, OK, well, here you go. Page 76. OK. And, and you're not playing the game as much as you are referring to rules. And I'm going to say that's a problem. You want to streamline it. So I've been talking to my my friends who we were all playing it as teenagers back in the 80s. And they've actually, one of them actually said, do you know what? I'd like to play a game. And I'm actually setting it up at the moment. And the thing is, we'll use the modern painted figures and we'll use sort of like modern scenery stuff. I'm going to have a great fun time setting up the table. But I'm deliberately going to strip out all that stuff. Basically, the big stompy thing will be big and stompy. And yes, that means that I have to sort of make a judgment on terms of points because they may not be using all of their abilities. But do you know what? We'll have fun. And that's the point of a game. 
but I understand with all these balances and the fact that there are different ways to hobby and there's no wrong way to hobby. I want to be quite clear on that. As people say that the core areas of how to hobby in this sort of world is one, do you build and convert and muck around with the figures? That's one way of doing it. Secondly, do you paint the figures? Thirdly, do you play games? Fourthly, do you like reading all the lore, all the sort of like background information? Those are the main ones. I'm sure people are going to say, oh, you, you forgot about this, that, and the other. But th those are principally the way that you do things. And recently, I've been in a bit of a funk where I've got a bit bored of building. Now, a couple of years ago, I built an entire army that was scratch built. Every single thing in that army was a combination of two, two different armies plus some extra bits. And I had a great time creating this very bespoke thing, just so, if in case you care. So... It was an ad-mech army. What's that? It's basically a bunch of cyborg engineers, sort of on the human side, because they're the ones who make all the kit for the space marines and stuff like that. So if you can imagine, you're talking about lots of bionics, lots of sort of... Uh, think of people like Doc Ock in Spider-Man, people like that, but also with, like, you know, robotic eyes and all kinds of weird stuff. They're a great army anyway, but I combined them with, in essence, a ghost army. So they're almost like cyborg wraiths. And every single figure in that army, even the even the larger machines, the other thing I did is I got bought bought lots of little little cogs. Not really for watches, but actually they're more like decorative cogs. So I would sort of stick those into various machines and stuff like that. So they're like, they're like a clockwork ghost army. It's really distinctive. Really love doing that. And but that was a couple of years ago when obviously COVID was raging, etc. And just recently, I've just got a bit bored of building stuff. Just it's sort of like particularly when you're building infantry, you're talking about something that's less than three centimeters tall. And yet I'm doing right now, I'm literally building Imperial Guards. So they're just absolutely standard soldiers. They're human soldiers. They could look like they're in World War Two. And it's basically two pieces for the legs, two pieces for the body two pieces for the arm and gun and a piece for the head so that's not that many pieces but even then because they're quite small i'm finding it a bit fiddly and annoying it's just sort of like i've got to build 25 of these so far i've built five anyway so my point here is that for the people who really want to get into the gaming game side of it and actually it's been a very long time since i've actually sat down and played an actual game of it then there are all these different layers of rules but you know what in the real world, it's the same thing. Come back to that later. But let's go to the Age of Sigmar. So that one, as I said, is more fantastical. And there are some armies where there is no real relation to the real world. I mean, there is an entire army of giants. There's an entire army of ghosts. There's an entire army which, well, actually not the entire army, but there are armies that do have access to dragon riders. They're awesome. Not only are they awesome to paint and they look awesome on the battlefield, but also they're awesome in terms of they cause a huge amount of damage and they're very mobile. And yeah, they're beware of the dragon riders. So yeah, okay, fine. There's that too. But what you've got is either groups that need to get up close, which is absolutely what happened in things like the Middle Ages and Ancient World, and then there's things like Cities of Sigmar, which is uh, sort of humans. This is pulling together lots of old armies, but this would be a more of a Renaissance army. At this point, you have things like musketeers and cannons and things like that. So there is range there. There's also the Caradron Overlords. That's the one type of dwarf in Age of Sigmar. And they actually have um, airships. 
and they are again quite reliant on rifles, guns, cannons, things like that. So yeah, they do okay hand to hand, but they need to keep their range. And absolutely you get armies like that in the Middle Ages. The classic example would be the English in the Middle Ages, where with the help of their Welsh longbows and longbowmen, it was a mixture of Welsh and English really when we talk about the Hundred Years' War, there was no doubt that France had the bigger armies. There was no doubt that France was richer. And when you've got somebody like the Count of Anjou in full plate armour charging at you at an English peasant, there's no doubt who's going to win that. It's going to be the Count of Anjou, okay? But once you've got these armour-piercing arrows with these longbows that were effective to at least half a mile, you now have half a mile to close before you can start being an effective hand-to-hand combatant. So, a lot of the English in the Hundred Years' War was basically get into the forest, chop down a tree, get some logs going, carve one end of the log so it's a big spike, put the other end of the log diagonally into the ground and stand behind that. So, if the cavalry are going to charge at you, they're going to hit that very large palisade of almost like a hedgehog or porcupine of these logs, which will shatter, obviously, any kind of cavalry charge. And then standing behind it, you have the archers pouring out thousands of arrows. Indeed, longbowmen in the Middle Ages could fire faster than musketmen in something like the era of the Napoleonic Wars. Now, why didn't France pick up the longbow? Because it took a lot of time to learn how to, to draw that to full strength. The British, particularly the English and Welsh, spent years actually practicing. There are various references to how kings cancelled football or banned football, and it wasn't because they were spoil sports, it's because they needed the average peasantry to spend their time practicing on the longbow. And so it could basically penetrate armor as well as a crossbow, but whereas with a crossbow you'd be lucky to fire it twice in a minute, with a longbow you could fire it 20 times in a minute. And a crossbowman was incredibly vulnerable while they were standing there, slowly hand-cranking the crossbow back into position. So the best artillery, the best ranged weaponry in all of Western Europe was from England and Wales in the Middle Ages. And that sort of ability to just keep everybody at arm's length at places like Agincourt and Crecy and other places as well, that was so important. But they weren't the only ones with clever bows if we go to the east and on into the middle east and into asia you've got things like the huns the magyars and also the mongols and turks and so you've got these horse archers and they had the best bows in the world they had composite bows now if you think about your typical robin hood bow it's like one semicircle quite shallow semicircle but that's the bow a composite bow or recurved bow basically looks like a W. There is extra curves in the bow, and that gives them more strength. So whereas they didn't quite have the range or penetrating power of the longbow, you needed a lot less strength to do them, and also you cannot fire a longbow while you're on the back of a horse, but you can if you've got a composite bow. So for every negative, you're now more mobile, faster, and you can maneuver your entire army to go round enemy troops. So again, you've got something like, let's take the most famous of the group, the Mongols, 
they were all about mobility and keeping their distance. The Mongols were not good in terms of hand-to-hand -hand fighting, but then again, you had to get to catch up with them and not get peppered in arrows. The classic thing with the Mongols and indeed some of these other Asiatic groups was to feign a retreat, then you would like charge over the hill after them and realize you've just come into a trap and you're now surrounded by these horse archers that would just literally, almost like a merry-go-round, just sort of like run around a massive circle around the enemy army and just keep firing their arrows into them and something's going to get through even if you're wearing plate armor. So that range side of things is so important in something like the Age of Sigma and also genuinely in medieval and ancient warfare. Other considerations in terms of maneuverability in these ancient worlds, and again, when you're pushing this stuff around on the tabletop, is a classic example. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Could be the Greek phalanx. Now, if you're not sure about this, this is the classic way the Spartans and generally the Greek hoplites would fight. What this is if somebody's got a large, circular, bronze-coated shield, they're wearing heavy armor, they would be wearing full plate helm, they would be wearing basically breastplate as well, probably wearing greaves too uh, and things like that. So in other words, it's the classic thing you've seen with a very long spear. You can't throw that. It's just too big and cumbersome. But if you've got a row of these guys, then obviously their shield covers their body, and sticking out between each shield or just above the curvature of each shield is one of these spears. And the reason why they're so long is because the guys immediately behind them could also stick their spears out. And so you're looking at at least three layers of spears. Trying to hit them head on is impossible. So what did they do when they were fighting each other? It was all about trying to get around the edges because it was such a rigid formation that once you hit them from the rear or sides, 
that formation breaks up very quickly and at which point you're just a guy with an overlong spear and you lose. This is why the Battle of Thermopylae, Hot Gates, all that good stuff was so important. It was such a narrow pathway the Persians couldn't get round and it was perfect for the way that the Greek hoplites fought. And that's why once the Persians had got round the back on day three, that's when they were doomed because the formation wasn't going to be able to withstand that. So that's another classic area there when you're talking about, you know, the considerations you have to make in terms of tactics and strategy, okay? And also the technology. This was the perfect way to fight in the Bronze Age because a spear, which is a piece of wood with a sharp bit of bronze on the end of it, that was actually better than Bronze Age swords, which if you had a whole piece of bronze that made up a sword, the blade and everything, it would blunt quickly, it would bend potentially, and so you did have, talking about roughly 500 BC now, the Greek warriors would see a sword as a weapon of last defence. Always go for your spear first. Whereas, if we fast forward one and a half thousand years into the age of iron and steel, a sword absolutely would be valid, if you like. So, there we go. Another bit of technology going on there, the technology of war. Now, let's leap over from Age of Sigmar into the world of Warhammer 40,000. So there is a great meme. There are, Quite often you'll get these... You can build a tank, and there's usually a tank commander. Now you could put the hatch down so you could just build the vehicle and just have it as a vehicle. Or you could have a guy sort of sticking out the top of it. And sometimes they're looking on their binoculars. Sometimes they're pointing a finger and shouting. But quite often, they're there with like a sword or laz sword or chain sword. Variations in the world of Warhammer 40,000. But they're basically sort of pointing their sword in a direction as if to say to the actual tank operator, like, head north, go left, or something like that. But the meme is, drive over there so I can hit them with my sword. And that's the thing. It's kind of ridiculous. And so you get things like mechanized cavalry. That is a genuine phrase in modern militaries. It's like, what do you mean mechanized cavalry? It means that 200 years ago, they were horsemen. But you don't really have horsemen anymore in, in wars. Yes, there's going to be somebody turning around and going, I think you'll find special forces in Afghanistan as recently as three, four years ago. Absolutely, we're using horses. Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. But that's not generally the way the US Army is equipping their troops, okay? Hopefully, you'd agree with me on that one. But yes, I mean, obviously, the use of tanks has been around now for over 100 years. And you do have these units that used to be one thing that are now a rather different thing but you get the dress uniform. So if you don't know this, there's basically the actual battlefield clothing, and that's all the camouflage and all the practical stuff you need to wear to keep yourself sort of alive and relatively safe on a battlefield. But when you're doing parades and things like that, think of the Coldstream Guards or the Grenadier Guards. They're the ones in the British Army with the bright red jackets and the massive, huge chalcos of, uh, in, in terms of sort of busbies they're called lots of different things but big big massive black hairy hat okay that's clearly like half a meter high or bigger completely impractical in the modern world of combat but that's genuinely what they wore in places like the crimean war 150 years ago so clearly when you're sort of like dressed up and trying to look good when you're on parade the clothing quite often harks back to a very different age and a classic thing an officer will wear, a classic being even for America, which obviously had less fighting in the time of musket and more in the modern world. But even then, 
a US Marine officer will be very proud about the sword that they carry, even though I guarantee that person will never have used swords in battle, because why would you? You'd be using your assault rifle, hand grenades, etc. Call in an airstrike, much more effective than a saber, alright? So, that's what the model is going for. It's not seriously suggesting that they are literally wanting the tank to drive over there so they can hit them with a sword, but there is this weird kind of anachronism that's going on in Warhammer 40,000 that is one of the things that people love about it, including me. The idea that you get these incredibly genetically enhanced super warriors, these space marines, wearing this incredibly enhanced power armor. This is all amazing, and yet dangling off it with a wax seal would be a piece of parchment with basically an imperial prayer on it. And suddenly they look more like a medieval knight getting a blessing for like a papal indulgence or something like that than something that might look synonymous with something like Star Wars by by comparison. And so there's that kind of sort of semi-feudal scenario. Like literally you might have a hover skull. It's a skull, cybernetic skull thing with very basic robotics inside it, but it hovers, but then sitting on top of it's a candle. Because we've got the technology to make things hover, but we've forgotten how to create a torch, so we'll just have to use candles instead. That is the glorious side of Warhammer 40,000. But there is this thing about when it was being created in the 1980s and onwards that, of course, there's fantastical elements. Technically, there's no magic in Warhammer 40,000. Instead, you've got psychers gaining access to the warp. It's magic. You're just using different words. I mean, literally, you can cast psychic bolts to hit people and hurt them. Same thing as something like a fireball for all intents and purposes on the battlefield. But okay, fine, we'll call it what you needed to call it. And there are magical creatures like demons, for example. Okay, those things don't really have a comparison. But the stuff like the tanks, and this is one of the lovely things. When you go back to the Imperial Guard, I said I'm building some recently, they're very much based on the armies of World War II. And I did a whole episode on the Lehman Rust tank and tanks. Listen to that one. That came out, I don't know, a couple of months ago, something like that. But the, the thing about it is that the even by modern standards, those tanks kind of look a bit clunky. They're not the best designed by modern standards today in the 21st century, and yet this is in the 41st century. So the thing about this is that what you've got is this, as I say, this kind of disconnect and these influences. They got literally commissars in the Imperial Guard. That's exactly what they, the Red Army had in World War II, for example. But the thing is that you do have this science fiction-y stuff, but then when you're looking at what's going on in Ukraine right now, it's clearly there's quite a major change in technology. One of the biggest conversations around Ukraine in 22 and 23 is the use of drones. Now, to be clear, and taking my hat off to the world of Warhammer, there is one force in Warhammer 40,000, the Tau, which have loads of different types of drones. They've got weapons drones, shield drones, all this kind of stuff. Really, really clever that they've got those. But they kind of, in essence, hover around the rest of the Tau army. It's very rare that they would actually be autonomous and go off and do their own thing. And yet that's their point. That is the point of drones in something like Ukraine. 
And also this idea of people taking cover behind walls. Again, that's what we did in places like the, the Falklands War or the Crimean War or World War II or et cetera, et cetera, you know, relatively modern wars. And yet now with drone technology, people can be hiding behind a wall. The Ukrainians can see the Russians and then they call in a mortar strike or an artillery strike or something like that. So you're actually seeing some stuff that's kind of outmoded. And indeed, you have to have this thing called unit cohesion in Warhammer 40,000. The idea that basically if you've got 10 guys in a unit, they have to be, their bases have to be relatively close to each other. If they break formation, depending on which version of the rules, but basically you have to take them off the board. You're sort of like, oh, well, they, they've all got dis disorientated and disorganized, so some of them go away. Okay, let's think about that for a moment. Because in the modern war, people are moving around all over the place. This idea of sort of like rigid unit formation wasn't really a thing even in World War II. I mean, yes, units did tend to hang around each other, but you had things like paratroopers, Falschermjägers, call them whatever you want, and they were spread out all over the place. What really it's alluding to is the time of World War I, or indeed something like the Napoleonic era, when you needed everybody grouped up to concentrate the firepower. And... That isn't a thing now, 100 to 150 years later. So why is it a thing in basically 38,000 years time? So there are some things that are sort of strangely anachronistic. One of the things that is a bit edgy about the world of the Imperial Guard is, like I say, they kind of very much lean into World War One and World War Two, sort of like a more modern era of, of weaponary rather than futuristic, super futuristic is they have a lot of heavy artillery. And of course, what Ukraine has shown is how genuinely devastating and horrible heavy artillery is. But what's interesting about that, putting it into the real world right now, is there's been problems with supply of artillery, shells and rockets, because the West, including America, has assumed that the next war would have been fought with more high-tech equipment, whereas the blunt bludgeoning of using artillery is actually what both sides, Ukraine and Russia, have been using a lot of. There are some situations where they're using 2,000 rounds of artillery shells every day. So somebody has to be making a lot of artillery shells to make that up. And indeed, modern artillery, like the M777s, these are American sort of howitzers, with just minor modifications to them in terms of range finding and guidance, laser guidance and things like that, this is a type of artillery that could have been seen. It was actually, the triple sevens were actually came into production just after World War II, but it's basically the same as World War II artillery. Let's say it's kind of Korean War era, okay? There aren't a lot of other things in the Korean War still being used, but by just changing the basic type of how to target, it's suddenly become a lot more accurate over 20 miles, which is something like the range of it. Probably the only other thing that's being regularly used by the U.S. Army that sort of what even predates that is the 50 caliber heavy machine guns, which basically were invented and created just after World War One. But they got the design so right. And 50 cal, to give you an idea, when we start talking about handguns, we're talking about nine millimeters. That's something that's a bullet that's just over the size of the tip of your little finger because it's obviously a handgun, etc. 50 cal is a bullet that's longer than my longest finger. It's as wide as well. It's the sort of thing that will pulverize breeze blocks and things like that. You can hide behind a wall, but that wall will be, in essence, dissolved by 50 cal. So you've got something like that, and there is sort of 
imitations of that in Warhammer about whether you can or can't take cover. But this idea of using drones, for example, so that you can easily hit these people, whereas the rule is generally if you can't see it, you can't hit it. There are exceptions. There's always exceptions in Warhammer. That's one of the other reasons why it makes it so difficult to follow. But you get the idea. Even though you've got something like the Necrons, these millions upon millions year old metallic sort of skeletal almost immortal sort of robot intelligent things what a brilliant description jim funnily enough they came out round about the time that terminator 3 was coming out but anyway we we're not going to call them terminators but no they're sort of like they very much sort of tie into sort of extremely ancient extremely powerful civilization that's that pre-exists anything of, of humanity yeah but they don't have drones it's the Tau, the youngest group. They've only been really a, a threat to the rest of the universe or galaxy for maybe a few thousand years. That's it. Far less than even the humans. But they're the ones who've got the drones. And even though we know, as I've just said, the servo skulls, sort of like, you know, the basic bits of technology inside a skull that hovers around, you don't get drone groups of those for the Imperials. So it is weird that some of this technology absolutely is being used today and we can see its devastating effects with regrets and other bits of kit that we've got today isn't really being represented in something that's to do with warfare set tens of thousands of years into the future that's kind of hilarious to me but then again i don't want the game to get any more complicated than it is but it does show you how important having a technological advantage is in any kind of war. And indeed, obviously, this has happened in the past before. There's the classic thing about World War One was the first time you had a mass amount of Maxim guns, fully automatic heavy machine guns, sometimes called Vickers machine guns, etc. Yes, those have been used in wars before, but quite often they were used in colonial wars. Probably the most disgusting example of that was when Cecil Rhodes... This is the man who created Rhodesia, named after himself. He was not doing this on behalf of the British Empire. I feel the need to say this. The British Empire didn't tell him to go there and do this thing. He just did it because he thought he could get away with it. And regrettably, he did. So this is an example where, yeah, it wasn't the British Empire who started it, but it wasn't the British Empire who held him to accountable and started trading with his newly set up brutal regime. So he basically fought the local tribes called the Matabili, who think of them as the Zulus. They're basically the Zulus, but they're in modern-day Zimbabwe. But they had different language, but absolutely fought in the same way, had those sort of cow-tanned hide shields, and they had those short spears. That's the classic thing. And he managed to rile up the locals so that, that war was declared, which is exactly what he wanted, and he basically had maybe a couple of hundred troops, but the, critically, he had five of those heavy machine guns set up. Now, to let you know, there is debate about this, but the phrase, give them the whole nine yards, or giving it the whole nine yards, the length of the belt of machine gun bullets that goes into one of those heavy machine guns is nine yards. So in other words, it's saying, fire everything, use it all up. And they can fire 300 rounds of ammunition in one minute. And if you can imagine, you've got five of those set up against people who have no other armor than a cowhide shield technically it's a battle what was it really a massacre and so this very proud nation was brought to its knees within minutes 
of that kind of technological imbalance. But the British got a fair taste of it themselves in World War I when all sides had those Maxim guns and the carnage ensued, obviously. And that's the terrible crime about it. Every side is looking for a technological advantage. Sometimes the next war is fought in a way that nobody was expecting. Like, for example, the Falklands War. Everybody was looking to Europe. Everybody was looking at the Cold War. And then suddenly you've got Argentina invading these islands. And then the British send in their own troops. And really, it was a colonial war from 100 years ago fought with modern weapons. That it surprised everybody, both Argentina and Britain. The rest of the world looked on in sort of like bemusement about what was going on there. So it can happen in the Falklands. It's happening in Ukraine. It's interesting, you know, what weapons are effective. And the other interesting thing I'll say, going back to Ukraine, is there's been this theory for a long time that the era of the tank is over. You know, with modern attack helicopters, they can hit with rockets miles away a slow-moving tank. And yet, what's been shown in Ukraine is those attack helicopters are incredibly vulnerable to Stinger missiles. So actually having a 40-ton battle tank you know, which troops can hide behind and it can fire an equivalent of something like artillery with its heavy cannon. There haven't been a lot of tank battles, but tanks being used as support have been used in their hundreds by both sides in Ukraine. And yet it's the attack helicopters, you know, the classic Heinz, for example, that have been shot out the sky over and over again, mainly by the Ukrainians using Stinger missiles, which is exactly what the Mujahideen, the sort of proto-Taliban did to those same Russian attack helicopters in Afghanistan with the same American-made Stinger missiles back in the 1980s. So showing that sometimes people don't learn the lessons from the previous war. So you got Warhammer sometimes representing modern warfare, sometimes strangely behind the curve on modern warfare, and sometimes absolutely showing you stuff from ancient warfare. All of this... M- wrapped up in what can be a fun game if i'm going to say if both parties are willing to say let's let some of these overly complicated details slide and if any of the games testers from games workshop ever hear this please make the next versions of the games easier not harder thanks very much and as always another episode coming soon Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details hey it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to Quince I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters sleek leather jackets fine jewelry and so much more with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands and they partner with factories that prioritize safe ethical and responsible manufacturing I love that Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.